8, we're in verses 22 to 26. And the word of the Lord says this. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David my father and you declared to him, You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked, as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are a wondrous and amazing covenant-keeping God who has called us to fully and wholly worship you as your people. And I pray as we have this time in your word that you will teach us just about the reality of what it means to worship you. The reality that, that, that you are a God um, who desires our whole hearts. That you are a God who desires to bless your people. But yet you are also a God who rightly and justly judges sin. And yet you are the God who forgives. And yet you are the God who keeps covenant with your people. May we just see that this morning. May we just rejoice in the reality of who you are. And yet, may we just leave here this morning with a greater desire to know you and to follow you all the days of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin this morning by sharing with you a short story of one of my, about kind of one of my favorite childhood companies. Um, and this story comes from the website indigodigital.com. And it says this, before the advent of streaming, Blockbuster, I don't know if you remember Blockbuster, yeah, yeah, Blockbuster was a popular video rental store where customers could rent their favorite movies and DVDs uh, and watch them at home. While it's hard to imagine having to leave the comfort of your own home to rent a movie, at one time in the 90s and early 2000s, Blockbuster was extremely popular. It was, the var- it was the largest video rental company in the world with over 9,000 stores and over 50 million members. But now fast forward 20 years, and there is only one, one blockbuster store left, and it's in the town of Bend, Oregon. And in fact, actually, I, th- I can't remember if it's on Netflix or on Hulu or where it is, but there's like a documentary about that one blockbuster so if you, want to go, if you want to go watch it, do. So what happened? Well, there are many factors that led to their downfall. I want to point out one that seems to be one of the biggest miscalculations in the history of business. Blockbuster made a critical error when it walked away from a deal with Netflix. 
Netflix wanted to sell its company to Blockbuster for $50 million in 2000. Yes, that was a real thing. Like, Netflix was ready to say, you can have us. And at that point, Netflix was a, just a young startup, and then they only had launched three years earlier. And if the deal went through, Netflix would have ultimately managed Blockbuster's online business. Three years after Blockbuster turned down Netflix's offer, Netflix had more than one million subscribers. And then in 2006, they had more than six million subscribers. Then in 2008, the CEO of Blockbuster made a statement where he said in a moment of pride, he said, I've been frankly confused by this fascination that everybody has with Netflix. Netflix doesn't really have or do anything that we can't or don't already do ourselves. Well, then it was only two short years later that Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. And as the story said at the beginning, only one of them exists today. And now, I, I love sharing this story just because I love my childhood nostalgia. Like, if anyone were to ask me what's the greatest decade after, I would easily say it was the 90s. Like, the best. But I'm actually sharing this story because it parallels exactly what happened in 1 Kings. But before we do get there and just the specifics of what happened in the book, I want to give you a few quick details. So 1 Kings is actually part of one book, and that actually is the book of 1 and 2 Kings. So originally they were put together as one book. Scholars conjecture about whether or not there was one author or multiple authors, but ultimately there's no consensus. We don't really know who wrote the book of 1 and 2 Kings, and we really don't know how many authors there were. However, what scholars do agree on is that the book could not have existed in its final form before 561 BC. Because if you go all the way to the end of 2 Kings, what you see is that that's when Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was released from prison. And that happened in 561 BC. So we know that 1 and 2 Kings, at least in its final form, wasn't written before then. And the purpose of 1 and 2 Kings was to provide the readers, and especially those in Israel that would have been reading this, with an understanding of the rise and fall of the kings of Israel, and ultimately that they would understand that God was sovereignly in control of all of it, that God was the one who was doing it all for his purposes. And so this morning, since we're only in 1 Kings, we're just going to get half of the story. And as we look at this book, this book divides up into two main parts. And the first part is David's last days and Solomon's reign. That's chapters 1 through 11. And then the second part is the kingdom of Israel divided in all of its kings. And that's 1 Kings 12 through 20. In fact, I have this slide for you here that kind of gives you a graphic of how this broke up. So you have united Israel all together. That's, that's David and, and Solomon. I didn't, I didn't put Saul on there because he's not technically in 1 Kings. But you have David and Solomon in the united Israel. And then right after, right after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And you have the kings of the one tribe of Judah. And we'll talk about why that happened. And then the rest of the kings over, over all Israel. And you'll notice that, again, it goes over to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is not part of, of David or Solomon's line. Then he has Nadab, who's killed by Basha, who has Elah, who's killed by Zimri, who's killed by Omri, and then Ahab and Ahaziah. And then, of course, the rest of the kings of Judah. But what's more important than who these kings actually were is that 1 Kings teaches us about who our God is and how he deals with his people. 
And it teaches us as a first importance. This is the most important thing. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, it's that God must be worshipped. He is a God who must be worshipped. And as the one true and living God who must be worshipped, we also learn that he blesses those who follow him, that he condemns and judges false worship, that he forgives those who turn away from sin, and that he is ultimately faithful to his promises. And we'll see all of those this morning as well. And so let's begin our journey in 1 Kings this morning on a positive note and looking at the fact that God blesses those who worship and follow him. That's the first point for this morning. And I got a lot of scripture. You'll notice as we go through this message, there's going to be a lot of scripture. So try to, try to follow along the best you can. So 1 Kings 3, verses 5 to 14. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your, your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So David, Solomon's father at this point, has died, and the kingdom is firmly established in Solomon's hand. And what we learned very quickly about Solomon in this book is that he was actually a man who loved God. Despite what's going to happen later in this book, if you've read it, he is a man who loved God. In fact, the author tells us in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. And so because of this, God appears to him and he says, Solomon, ask me for anything and I'm going to give it to you. Just think about that. Can you imagine someone coming to you and saying, hey, you know what? Ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. What do you think you'd ask for? Maybe you'd ask for a new car. Maybe you'd ask for a new house. Maybe the traditional, like, genie in a bottle, everybody asks for everlasting riches. I want to be rich forever. Maybe you'd ask for health. Maybe you'd ask to live forever. The things that Solomon could have asked for were limitless. And yet the amazing thing is he doesn't do that. Instead, he recognizes God's faithfulness to his father David. And then at the same time, he sees his own ability to lead the people of Israel in a way that actually is going to honor God. 
And so we ask God for an understanding mind to know good and evil so that he could rightly govern his people. Solomon's desire was the welfare of God's people. And why that's important is because by extension, what he really was about was God's glory. Because God's people, Israel, were called to be a witness to the greatness and glory of God to the surrounding nations. We know the text says that as a result, God was pleased with him. And he not only gave him what he asked for, but he gave him even more in abundance. According to verse 12, he gave him so much wisdom that he would become the wisest man in the world. And if we just go a little bit farther in chapter 3, you see this wisdom applied because two prostitutes come to him and they have a dispute and Solomon settles it. And and, and a a, uh, kind of report spread that he had done this. Oh, the wisdom of Solomon. He also uses that wisdom to build the temple and to dedicate it to God so that God would would, uh, dwell with his people Israel. And he did that in chapters 5 to 8. And it allowed his fame to spread across the world so far that the queen of Sheba, she comes. She comes over, not really to see his kingdom, but more just to ask him a bunch of questions. Because he's such a wise man. But God doesn't stop there. He also tells him in verse 13 that he's going to give him what he didn't ask for. Which includes riches and honor and a long life. And now before we go any further, I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to kind of insert something here, because you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Ryan, are you going to preach a prosperity sermon right now? Are you going to tell us that if we just have enough faith, that man, God's going to give us whatever we want, that if I'm like, hey, you want a Ferrari? You just need to pray hard enough. God will give it to you. As long as you give $30,000 to the church. No. No, that's not true. And I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say this, and I'm going to say this without hesitation, because Scripture says it, that God blesses those who love him and follow him. And I'll say that again, that God blesses those who love him and follow him. Look with me at these verses. So Jesus says this in Matthew Matthew 6.33, and just to give you context for Matthew 6.33, right before this, Jesus is telling these people, hey, you're worried about a lot of things. You're worried about what you're going to eat. You're worried about what you're going to wear. You're worried about all of this stuff that you feel like you need. But then Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All the things that you need, God will give them to you. And then in Luke 18, 28 through 30, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times, and this is important, many times more in this time, that's the here and the now, and in ages to come, eternal life. God has blessings for us as his children that not only are eternal, meaning that they're going to come when we see Jesus face to face in eternity, but he also has blessings that he wants to give us today. And I do just want to remark here, I know because of the prosperity gospel, because so many people have taken this and like just kind of taken these truths and exploded them to mean things that they don't, it's hard for us to hear that. It's hard for us to believe that, but it's true. 
And again, I'm not going to say that if you have enough faith that life's going to be easy because there are many people throughout history and many people even in this room and in this church that are very faithful and yet have had very hard things happen in their lives. And I can't even say for sure how God will bless one person versus another because Scripture doesn't tell us that. They're not, there's no part in Scripture where it's like, well, if you just have this much faith and if you're this kind of person, then God will bless you in this way. Right? He doesn't give into the specifics of, I will do this specific thing for you. I'll give you this kind of house or this kind of job or yada, yada, yada. He doesn't do that. But it does tell us that we are called to seek God's kingdom as of first importance. That our heartbeat, our heart's desire should be God's kingdom and his glory above all else. And if we do, his word tells us that he will continually pour his blessings upon us in such a way that it is going to be for our present good and our eternal good. And so my call to us this morning is to be like Solomon in 1 Kings 3. Desire God's wisdom and his glory more than your own. But then also believe that he will and does reward those who seek him. But as much as I'm pointing out the good parts of Solomon's life, there is also an unfortunate downfall that comes, and there are ensuing consequences that follow from it. That's our second point for this morning, that God rightly condemns and judges false worship. Look with me at 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to, to these in love. He had 700 wives. Can you imagine that? That's a lot, right? I mean, my wife's amazing, and one's hard enough, okay? And she would say the same about me. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was, was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. And by the way, just as a side note, if you don't remember Molech, Molech is the one that, when you hear about Molech in Scripture, the people who worship Molech would sacrifice their children to him, to just show you how bad this is, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant, to your servant. He started out so well, didn't he? He was loving God. He was full of wisdom. He built God's temple. 
God was dwelling with his people in Israel, and God was blessing him, and God was doing this work of building him a huge kingdom. And if we think about the opening story, Solomon and his kingdom, they were like blockbuster. At the peak of their power, they had over 9,000 stores. They had over 50 million members. And if all we ever knew about 1 Kings was the first 10 chapters, we probably would assume that there is no way that Solomon and his kingdom would fall. And as a kid, I remember as a kid, I went to Blockbuster so much, and it was just sort of like such an integral part of what I did. If you had told me, like, oh, by the way, 20 years later, like it's not going to be a company anymore, I'd be like, you're kidding me. I wouldn't have believed it. But unfortunately, that happened. And this happened to Solomon. You see, Solomon started out loving God with all his heart, and then somewhere along the line, his heart was lured away from God by sin. And instead of loving God with his whole heart, he gave his love, his affection, and his desire over to something else. And he gave it over to women, lots and lots of women. And these women not only took his heart away from God, but they caused him to sin. And he sinned by, by building altars to fake gods of the surrounding nations. And he did exactly what God's word told him not to do. Look with me at these verses. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. The people of Israel, they were not to intermarry with the people from the surrounding nations. Not because God, as we think about this today, it's not because God is like, no, people from different cultures can't marry. That's not it. But in this time specifically, it's because God knew that if they intermarried with the people from the surrounding nations who worshiped these false gods, that their heart would be turned away from the Lord. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. And then in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verses 3 to 6, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. But we know Solomon allowed there to be many false gods and carved images in Israel. And they not only led him astray, but as we look through the rest of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings, they led the people of Israel astray. And it's not like Solomon didn't know. Because if you think about the verses that we started out with in this point, it says in verses 9 and 10 that God told Solomon twice, right? The author makes a point to point that out. I told him twice not to do this and not to worship these false gods. And so if we want to be like, well, maybe Solomon forgot, he didn't forget. He knew exactly what he was doing. And the resulting consequences were that God's, God's anger was kindled against him. And he tore the kingdom of Israel from Solomon and his descendants, and he divided the kingdom in two. And most of the tribes of Israel, they ended up following Jeroboam I, who was not of David's line, was not of Solomon's line. Right? They ended up following Jeroboam the first. But there was one tribe, the tribe of Judah, 
that was given to Solomon's descendants, and particularly his son, Rehoboam. And so the tribes of Israel that followed Jeroboam, we call them the northern kingdom, and then the tribe of Judah, again, under Rehoboam, we call them the southern kingdom. But what this did also is it set in motion a a succession of kings in the northern kingdom and many in the southern kingdom who rejected Yahweh as their God and instead worshipped the false gods of the surrounding nations. And it also set in motion years and years of war, both between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and between the surrounding nations. In fact, if you read through beyond chapter 11 of 1 Kings, if you read 12 to 22 and then all the way through 2 Kings, it's war after war, division after division, infighting after infighting, all because of what Solomon did. Now, as important as it is to understand that God has blessings for us when we love and follow him, this story shows us that it's vitally important. It is vitally important to understand that willfully walking in sin as consequences. And even though like we, we're never going to feel the consequences of a kingdom being torn from us, none of us are going to be kings and queens and have that happen to us, we can look to the New Testament to see that there are clues of what the consequences of sin can be. Look with me at these verses. James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The consequences of walking in sin may be that it causes fights and division within the church. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being in a church where there's a lot of infighting and there's a lot of division. That's a result of sin. And not only that, if you are continually walking in sin, know it's going to affect the relationships in your life, whether that be in your home, whether that be in your job, whether that be in your church. And the effect isn't going to be good. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this is Paul's words to the church at Corinth, who's basically taking communion in an unworthy manner. And he says, you eat and drink judgment, or he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And the truth is, is that walking in unrepentant sin can have physical consequences on our health. And now I want to pause and just say that I'm not saying that all physical ailments are, are a result of sin, Right? If you go to the life of Jesus and you see all of the miracles that he did, all the ways that he healed people, the reality is that not all of those people were paralyzed or were a leper or were blind because of their sin. In fact, he says, no, they were made this way so that God would be glorified. It was so that God could heal them. So not all physical ailments are are a result of sin, but these verses do make it clear. We see that some of them can be. We also saw in Exodus 25, sin can also have an effect just not, not just on the people in your life, but on future generations. As it said, God visits the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation. 
And now I just want to say this as a, as a brief aside. I think about my own life. I think about the, the family that I grew up in, and I think particularly about my dad. And as many of you know, and I mentioned this at men's ministry yesterday, my dad died back in 2017. And there are things, there are struggles that I see in my own life that are things that are a direct result of growing up in a home with my father. And it's not to say that I'm not held accountable for them. It's not to say that I can blame them on him. But the reality is those things exist. Like our sin and willfully walking in sin has an effect on future generations. And then lastly, in 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The ultimate consequence for, willing, for willingly living in sin is that it may become clear that we don't know God and we're not his children. And the only thing left for us is to receive the right punishment for our sin, which is eternal separation from God. So as much as we want to rejoice and get excited about the blessings that come from following God, we need to learn from the example of Solomon that turning away from God and loving sin more than him is something that is not only detestable in his sight, but if we choose to continually walk in sin, there may be very real consequences that God brings about in our life as a result. And those consequences might not just be present consequences in the here and now, but again, if we continually walk that way, showing that we don't really love God, those consequences might be eternal as well. So now that I've bummed you out, uh, I do have hope for you this morning, and that's in the last two points. The first one is this, that God graciously forgives those who turn away from sin. 1 Kings 8, verses 33 and 34, and this is a, a prayer of Solomon, and he says, when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. And this is a very fitting prayer, isn't it? In fact, if you read all of 1 Kings 8, if you haven't read it, what it feels like, it sort of feels like a prophetic prayer where Solomon knew, he sort of knew, like, I think my people are going are gonna to end up walking away from God, and they're going to end up in captivity. It's very strange. You read it. It's almost like he, just, he knew what was coming in the rest of the book and into 2 Kings. But the important aspect of these verses and much of his prayer in chapter 8 is that Solomon was praying with the understanding that if God's people recognize their wrongdoing, if they turn away from evil and they turn to God in true repentance and worship, that he's going to hear them and he is going to forgive them. And this is something, in these first 10 books that we've gone through, this is something that we see time and time again. Now, if you think about Genesis, right? Joseph's brothers, they come to him, they confess their sin, and then what does God do? God blesses them in the land of Goshen. In Exodus, God forgives his people after that, the whole golden calf incident. All of Leviticus, all of it's pointing to the fact that God wants to forgive his people and that God wants to dwell with them. Or Judges, if you read through Judges, every time God's people cry out to him, even though we know what's going to happen next. 
Even though we know that they're going to walk away from him again, he still answers them. And then lastly, Solomon would have understood God's forgiveness as surely he had to hear about what happened between David and his mother Bathsheba. But we can also look to the last part of 1 Kings to see what I believe is one of the greatest examples of God's goodness and his grace and his forgiveness. And it comes in one of the most unlikely people. And it comes in King Ahab. 1 Kings 21, verses 20 through 29. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you and I will utterly burn you up. And I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, and Jezebel is Ahab's wife. The Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of, of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably, that's a very tough word for me for some reason, in going after, in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. I think it's interesting that the author of 1 Kings makes it clear that Ahab is the worst king. And he truly was. In the history of Israel, he is absolutely the worst one. Because he was evil, because he was terrible, Elijah came to him and said, you know what? God's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy you. He's going to destroy your descendants, your sons, your whole house. It's gone. But this is the thing. Instead of hardening his heart like Pharaoh did in Egypt, when Ahab hears these words, he humbles himself before God and he repents. And God responds by telling Elijah, not that there wouldn't be consequences for sin, because there at times is, but that disaster wouldn't come upon Ahab and his kingdom in his reign. Do you see how good that response is? God was willing to have compassion on the worst of worst people because he humbled himself. Because in that moment, he understood his wrongdoing and he repented. And I wish, because I'm not reading you the rest of the story, I wish I could go on to say that it ended well for Ahab. But it didn't. Unfortunately, Ahab repents in this moment. He turns to God. And then later he's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't follow God. And he's eventually killed in battle. But it should be comforting for us to realize that God will forgive anyone. He will forgive anyone who turns away from their sin and turns to him in faith. And if this is true in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, how much more is this true now that we have Christ who has brought the New Covenant? As it, as it says 
in 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I want to encourage you this morning. If you're struggling with sin, if you're living in a way that you know is contrary to the new life that God has for you in Christ, then I want to call you like John does to confession and repentance. To humble yourselves before God, to turn away from sin, and to turn to Christ who is our faithful Redeemer. And not only receive the forgiveness and acceptance that he has for you, but again, based on our first point, receive the full blessings of a life well lived for him. And remember, you're not too far gone. I think very often when sin comes into our life and we fall, I think we think, ah, I've done it now. God's not going to accept me, right? Or we think about the people in our life who might be lost in the ways that they're going, and we're like, ah, God will never save them. Man, they've, they've done horrible things. But know that we serve a God who will fully and wholly accept you and forgive you, no matter what you've done. If you turn to him in faith and worship him. And I just want to add this little caveat, because somebody brought this up to me between services. I'm not saying that God expects perfection. He, he, in fact, wants, he expects the exact opposite, at least from us, because perfection came through Christ. But what he does expect is that we turn to him in faith, that we trust him, we say we can't do it, and we need it. Turn to him in faith and worship him. So that's our first point of hope this morning. And here's our second one, and the last point for this morning is that God is a covenant-keeping or a promise-keeping God. And going back to the previous book that we looked at last week, 2 Samuel, these are God's words to David in 2 Samuel, uh, verse, I uh, can't remember, I, put it, I didn't put the chapter in, or 7, yeah, 2 Samuel 7, not 12 and 16, it's chapter 7, verses 12 and 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Just as God made a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations, he also made a covenant with David. And God told David that he would not only raise up a king that would come from his body, that was Solomon, but he said that he would establish his throne in his kingdom forever. And yet, despite Solomon's sin, despite the, the, the splitting of the kingdom of Israel in two, God continued to be faithful to his promise to David. In fact, in 1 Kings 11.36, God says, Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So God, at this point, he's in the process of telling Jeroboam, hey, Jeroboam, because Solomon has sinned, I'm going to divide this kingdom, and I'm going to take most of the tribes, and they're going to follow you. But because of this promise that I have made to David, I'm going to give him and his descendants one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And that ultimately went to his son, Rehoboam. 
And so despite all that happened, despite all the sin that Solomon committed that led to the splitting of the kingdom of Israel, God is faithful to his promise to David. And there are many times in, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings and throughout the Old Testament where it gets really dark. And it probably feels a lot to the Israelites, especially in that day, like, I don't think God's going to be faithful to his covenant. But he was. And we know that God not only kept his promise to David, but he fulfilled it for all time in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our forever King. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, from the tribe of Judah, the line of David. And because Jesus is our Savior and our King, because he is that promised Messiah, God himself in the flesh, we as his people, again, going back to the ultimate point of the sermon, we must worship him. And if we do, we have the promise of his present and eternal blessings. But if we don't, we must understand that continually walking in sin and failing to worship him can and does have consequences. And those consequences can be present. And if you continue in sin and don't follow God, those consequences can be eternal. But there's hope. There's hope that if we come to him, if we confess our wrongdoing and we turn away from sin, that he's going to forgive us. And he will do this because he is the promise-keeping God who has not only made us his people through his death on the cross, but because he is that promise-keeping God, he has given us rock-solid promises from his word. One, that we are his forever. If you are a believer here this morning, if you have put your, your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you know that you need him. He says that, that, that we are his forever. And he also tells us that he is the one who will help us to turn away from sin and ultimately live in a way that pleases him. And so I want to close with these verses for this morning. John 10, verses 27 and 28. These are Jesus' words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then Philippians 2, 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. And so with those promises in mind, I just want to say this. And I want to call you and I'll call all of us to this this morning. To love God and worship him with all your might. To do all you can to turn away from sin and joyfully receive the good blessings that God has for you in Christ, both in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. Lord God, it is so good to be reminded that you are the one true and living God who is a covenant-keeping God. You made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Moses, with David. And yet that's a covenant that you have kept all throughout human history until ultimately Christ came and was the fulfillment of your, the, the, all of Scripture. And in his coming, Lord, you, you kept your promises for all time, not only to your saints in the Old Testament, but to those of us whom you saw from the beginning of time that would put their hope and trust in you. And you have made us a promise that we are yours. You have made us a promise that, that if we 
follow you by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you have blessings for us. And so I pray, Lord, that that will excite us to walk in your ways. But also, Lord, that we will see how detestable sin is, that we won't want to walk in it, but that we will see that it is better It is better to walk in your ways for the glory of your holy name, knowing that you not only have blessings for us now, but that there is a glorious eternity that waits for us that is far better than anything else that this world can give us. And so, Lord, with that, help us to be a people that put our full hope and trust in you. And yet help us to leave this morning with the promise that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you will lead us to the end of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship.